Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. In our first two episodes, we explored the triumphs of human creativity, like building telescopes that look millions of miles into the galaxy to reveal our past, and 3D printers that can quickly construct affordable homes. But for all our ingenuity, the frailty of human health is perhaps one of the most humbling and confounding realities we face, a reality that the last two years have underscored. And what's more, we know that to tackle future pandemics and to mount a robust fight against any illness, period, we need to invest in our preparedness. But how should we plan for the things that we see coming and perhaps more importantly, the things that we don't? I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. I often say that you are constantly preparing for a test that you may never have to take. But if you do take it, you must ace it. There's no getting a C- on this test because you're doing it in front of 1,000 to 2,000 paying customers. Hi, I'm Kathy Voiko. I'm a Broadway performer, and right now I am the swing in The Music Man on Broadway. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a swing? A swing is an offstage performer who covers eight to 12 roles of the onstage cast. So at any given moment, I show up at the theater and they'll say, today you're playing the farmer's wife, or today you're going to be Marion Peru. The power of preparation is felt across different industries, including on Broadway. It was early morning in December, 2021. Another COVID variant was ravaging New York City. Kathy was in a routine costume fitting for the Music Man, starring Hugh Jackman as Harold Hill and Sutton Foster as the female romantic lead, Marion Peru. So we had had three previews and the fourth preview, Sutton Foster tested positive for COVID. And I was at a costume fitting at 11 a.m. At 11.45, I got a call from my stage manager and he said, Kathy, you're on for Marion. What do you need? At rehearsal. <laughs> Wait, there's no, there was no, there was no, do you want to do this? Do you, know, do you feel ready? Hilariously, there was not. And by one o'clock, there we were rehearsing. Uh, the entire cast came and we just went through everything once, a couple things twice. And Mary and the Librarian, which has a lot of props, what with the books and all, I think we did that two and a half times. <laughs> and then I was on. Kathy, like every other swing on Broadway, has to be prepared for black swan events, just like this every single day. She deals in the world of high glamour, but also high stakes. How did you become a swing? Give us a little bit of the backstory of how you became what sounds like the lifeblood of Broadway that no one really knows about. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to put it. Thank you. Um, I have been principals, I have been supporting players, and I have been on stage understudies. And as a swing, you don't just do one part, you do many parts on any given day. 
Um, and so it's a long audition process, actually, because the creative team has to make sure that you can not only do the singing, the acting, the dancing, that you can retain all that information. It sounds like, you know, in regular times that relying on a swing would have been like a risky endeavor, but it sounds like actually not having a swing is even more risky for a production. So yes, having proper coverage is a necessity. And if you see an insert in your playbill, it's not a bad thing. We have been studying for this and training for this and absolutely rehearsing our tails off so that the best day of a swing's life is if you go to see the show and don't even realize that anyone is on stage who is not normally on stage. It's crazy because the lovely and talented Hugh Jackman shined a light on swingdom that day that I went on for Marion Peru. A video of Hugh Jackman celebrating swings went viral that night that Kathy stepped in to play his leading lady. And far from just celebrating her work, Jackman's speech amplified just how much the seamlessness of Broadway is dependent on the preparedness of people like Kathy. The courage, the brilliance, the dedication, the talent, the swings, the understudies, they are the bedrock of Broadway. Yes. And I want to he was actually, I think, one of the single most influential people to get the discussion started. Had he not done that, I think that Swing would still be one of those, wait, do you, wait what do you do? What, what is that? But Hugh, God bless him, said, hey, Swings are people and here they are and thank God they're here tonight. And, and I'm forever grateful for him for just bringing a little bit of conversation to the Broadway community. American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we've been looking at disruption as a force for good, a tool to address the many crises we seem to be facing today, from the lack of sustainability in our food and housing systems to rising inflation. Solving each one requires innovative thinking and coordinated action. Perhaps most importantly, responding to these crises will require transforming our perspective and our understanding of risk. And when it comes to healthcare, we need to have a swing mentality to be ready for what life throws at us. Otherwise, we won't be ready for the curtain call or the next pandemic. I don't think we're doing enough in regards of funding really innovative, cutting-edge, paradigm-shifting medical research. My name is Aisha Akhtar. I'm a double board-certified neurologist and preventive medicine specialist. I was a commander in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, which is, you can think of like the public health arm of the military in a sense. Prior to working at the Army, I worked for 10 years at the Food and Drug Administration and most recently in the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats. Aisha has spent her career trying to help patients in need of immediate relief while also envisaging the future of medicine. And she thinks the answer to both lies in improving our testing methods. We now know 
that 90 to 95% of the drugs and vaccines that pass the animal test that are found safe and effective in animals are found unsafe or ineffective in humans. Wait, that's a huge statistic. Hang on, say that again. 90 to 95%? 90 to 95% failure rate. So the Food and Drug Administration requires that all new drugs and vaccines have to be tested on two different species before proceeding to clinical trials, human trials. Of all the drugs that proceed to human clinical trials, only 5 to 10% of them actually get approved. Most of them fail in human clinical trials. They fail because they're found to be unsafe or ineffective. The current system for testing medicines and vaccines is grounded in a 1938 law called the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act that mandated that every drug be tested on animals. So in 1937, there was a a sulfur drug. It contained diethylene glycol, which we know is what's used in antifreeze today. It didn't undergo any kind of testing or anything like that. And it killed 107 people, most of them children. That Federal Food, Drugs, and Cosmetic Act of 1938 basically set up what the FDA is today, gave them the regulatory authority to require safety testing and then later on efficacy testing on all drugs and vaccines before they can be tried in humans. That sort of set the precedent of basically how all drug and vaccine development is done today, not just in the United States, it's pretty worldwide now. Why is that a problem? Someone might say, well, hang on a second, you know, it's going to keep us safe, right? Like I want my FDA to be risk averse. You know, I want want regulatory bodies to be risk averse because I want them to be the ones who are sort of the last line of defense before this drug goes to grandpa. So what do you say to those people? I would say that 90 to 95% failure rate is not keeping us safe. There have been many drugs that have come through the pipeline that have caused immense suffering in humans because of toxic effects that were not predicted by the animal tests. Aisha makes it clear that she's all for regulation from and by the FDA. But as a doctor and a researcher, she believes that our experiments in science and medicine need more interrogation and new ideas. In short, our scientific innovation should be more more innovative. Currently, I'm the CEO and co-founder of the Center for Contemporary Sciences. And what we're trying to do is create a larger ecosystem that supports the discovery, the development, the use, and the funding towards more human-relevant testing methods. You kept using the phrase human-relevant. Yeah. So basically, it means testing methods that are based on human biology, not on the biology of a rat or a cat or a dog or a non-human primate. That doesn't mean more testing on humans themselves. It means embracing cutting-edge technology. We have been seeing more and more academic centers sprout up specifically around organ-on-a-chip technology or bioprinting or smart you know, AI, for example, to create really an integrated approach to studying drugs and to studying human biology and to studying human diseases. What is that? What is organ on a chip technology? So this is one of the most exciting innovations in medical science um, that's happened in the past maybe 10 to 15 years. And so basically you're using a plastic 
device that looks like a little plastic microchip. Um, but you're seeding human cells onto this chip and growing them into three-dimensional structures. For example, you can create um, a major subunit of the human lung on a on a chip on these micro devices, and they're, they're, the chip devices allow you to recreate the environment in which these organs would normally exist in in the human body. So you can have a circulatory system, um, and like a, a lung on a chip can actually breathe. What Aisha is describing is something like 3D printed organs. These organs developed on a chip can be tested for treatments, for vaccines, for therapies, giving a much more accurate representation of how a human organ might react. When we were looking at more basic physiology, anatomy, things like that, there was more concurrence and concordance between what we were seeing humans and another species. But today, we're now looking at the subtle nuances of molecular physiology, genetics, genetic expression, biochemistry, and just even minor differences between species in any of those areas can have a profound impact on the results of a study or whether a drug or vaccine is going to be safe or effective. Why do we continue to test on animals knowing there's this, you know, awful failure rate? It's dismal, right? When you think about it, right? Can you imagine hopping on a plane and the pilot saying, all right, you know, strap in, ladies and gentlemen, because you have less than 5% chance of landing safely at your destination. Everyone would immediately demand an overhaul of the airline industry. But that isn't really happening with this, even in light of this dismal failure rate and problem with drug development and, and testing. I think the reason why the FDA in light, in, in despite that high failure rate of animal testing, still requires that all new drugs and vaccines be tested on animals. It's because it's what they know. It is what they're used to. It is what they're comfortable with. We have to think of the flip side. How many drugs were abandoned based on animal testing, but would have been safe and would have been effective in humans? And so there's a large concern now that is also an, a, an increasing concern within the scientific community that we may have discarded useful drugs, maybe even cures, because they didn't work or they were unsafe in the animals that they were tried on. One of the most heartbreaking things for me as a neurologist is to tell a patient that you have multiple sclerosis or you have Parkinson's disease or your father has Alzheimer's because we have no treatment for any of those diseases. I mean, we have drugs that help with some of the symptoms, but we have no treatment that actually treats those diseases themselves. The federal government has been funding some research into organ-on-a-chip technology to develop vaccines and drugs to contend with COVID-19, but it's still seen as highly experimental. Aisha has been working with senators to create new legislation that expands the boundaries of medical testing. So there was a bill introduced last year in October called the FDA Modernization Act of 2021. And it's co-sponsored by um, Republicans and Democrats. What this bill does is it goes back to that 1938 statute that dictated that all drugs and, and you know vaccines have to be tested on animals. And what it does is it changes the word animal to preclinical. It doesn't take away animal testing. It doesn't end animal testing, but it 
incentivizes drug companies and it gives the FDA the authority to allow for drugs and vaccines to be tested on organ on a chip technology. With all of the work that you've done and with all of the agencies you've worked for and your current position, um, when you think about the risks of not innovating in terms of our preparedness for the next big thing, you know, the next pandemic, are you hopeful right now? I actually am. This pandemic, I mean, as awful as it's been, I think we're better prepared for the next pandemic in some ways because this pandemic has really caused an uptake in the use of these more human relevant testing methods because we needed methods that we can rely on. We needed methods that we can use to screen drugs very quickly and um, inexpensively. And so I think that that has that uptake in the use of these technologies is going to better prepare us for when the next pandemic happens. And I hate to say this, but the next pandemic will happen. It's very hard for human beings to prepare for something that you can't actually envision. That's Priya Chandran. So that's, you know, basically what you saw with the COVID situation, which is why it felt more like a response than I have a playbook, I'm just going to whip it out. She is a senior partner at Boston Consulting Group and spends a lot of time thinking about preparedness, especially in terms of healthcare. Around the world, everyone has felt the impacts of poor or non-existent planning for this global pandemic, from individual households to multinational organizations and perhaps most importantly, governments. When this pandemic hit, there wasn't agreed upon rules necessarily on what are some of the things that federal government will fully take accountability for? What are the things that state government will take fully full accountability for? You know, everyone knew that you needed gloves and masks and things like that, and you were running out of them. So the issue was that every state and sometimes every local government decided that they should start contacting suppliers and start trying to procure PPE. That was incredibly inefficient. And what it actually does do is push prices up. We are all competing against you know, ourselves, right? Like local governments, of course, need to prepare for, you know, supporting the local hospital system or supporting, you know, local access to food and things like that. But they don't need to be the ones calling suppliers and asking for more vents or more PPE. Once we've established who is in charge of what, essentially, do we have a central system right now where, for example, all of the hospitals can communicate with each other across state lines to find out who has what supplies or what ventilators? I mean, how how robust is the technology piece of our preparedness for another massive health event? It really isn't. I mean, if you look at the data infrastructure for public health, it, it's, it's pretty fragmented. Uh, it's probably pretty poor in most states. Um, so, you know, so even within within state lines, so leave alone connectivity across state lines. So having some investment in data infrastructure is probably going to be quite important. And it doesn't mean that you have to have all data collected all the time. So, for example, if you had a system by which you know the number of beds across various hospitals, or you know the PPE status across hospitals, forget a pandemic, let's assume you have a major, you know, hurricane. All of the area hospitals for that area can turn the system on and then start actually sharing the data. You know, that 
level of preparedness is important, but it also comes at a cost. Somebody has to do this work. You know, there's a systems cost, there is a people cost, there's a training cost and so on. And, you know, the, how you fund that, how you incentivize that is going to be a big piece of what has to be worked out. And therein lies the most crucial element. We can only set ourselves up for success if we invest in our future. You'll always have to react, right? But the more prepared you are, that reaction will be more effective. I would just use, honestly, the analogy of the, of the military. Like if you look at the Department of Defense, you know, it's, an, it's, it's a really well-run and well-funded agency. And that's all mostly preparedness. You know, it isn't like when the war is starting to happen, everyone starts, you know, figuring out what they need to do, right? You have processes in place, you have protocols in place. No one is actually scrambling to figure out what to do. And that's because we spend a hell of a lot of money and time on preparedness. Healthcare, less so. The, the fact is that private industry, you know, in the United States outspend the government when it comes to research. Is that a problem? I mean, the fact that, you know, we have a fantastic private industry, there is a huge, you know, set of incentives in the private industry to discover, develop new drugs. As such, not a problem. Where it is a problem is that, you know, in the case of infectious diseases, very often you have to actually invest without necessarily the commercial return that you may or may not get. So the reality of it is that in many cases, you're going to be making investments that commercially may not be the most lucrative. And so that's where government does need to step in to incentivize, you know, private industry to continue to invest. Where some might see sustained funding and spending as a risk, Priya points to opportunity. I never thought about health preparedness as risky. Most of what you do for health preparedness has pretty much immediate application to everyday healthcare, right? You know, let's assume that you're spending money on, you know, more efficient diagnostics. You know, that has a thousand uses for your everyday diagnostics for people. Even baseline technologies, like just the synthetic biology technologies, right? Gene editing, you know, there are uses not just in healthcare. You can actually make synthetic meat. You can make biofuels. There are thousand agricultural applications. I never really thought of these investments as risky. I mean, just the kind of jobs it creates, the kind of educational opportunities that people can have. I mean, for me, it's only a positive thing. War is very visible, right? Uh, And so you see it happen in other places and you know that it can happen to you. The problem with healthcare or a pandemic or, you know, infectious disease, it's a much more invisible thing until it starts happening in a big way. When you don't know what's coming next, how can you possibly prepare? You embrace the vulnerability, you take the risks, because it's the small moments and actions and experiences that just might lead to new discoveries. Whether you're a swing on Broadway like Kathy Voitko. I suppose it's not a job for everybody that not knowing what I'm gonna do every single day could probably be a very stressful thing, but I find it sort of thrilling and exhilarating. Or trying to save lives, like Dr. Aisha Akhtar. What are the risks if it doesn't change? If we don't prioritize the development and the use of human-relevant testing methods, the biomedical sciences is going to remain probably the only science and technology field that still remains largely trapped in the 20th century. 
Taking the leap today is how we ensure a better, healthier, and more resilient future. listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we examine the bet that we've already made on artificial intelligence.